Well, welcome to the Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for the ride. John Skull's here, simply talking, but all the brains uh, go to uh, Tamara Gopian and James Fireman, courtesy Samfiru Tamarkin LLP. You want to reach out to the guys anytime, you can do so. And uh, in fact, you're encouraged to do so. Just have a chat on your own time. If it's something you want to discuss, uh, of course, with them or a member of their team, the number one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. I'll give you some more contact uh, information and websites throughout the show you can use uh, to, uh, at your leisure. But uh, there you go. Reach out anytime. Your email may appear in this show and uh, it'll get answered regardless. Same with your your phone call at that uh, aforementioned number. We got a lot to get through today on the show, guys. Questions, emails pouring in, but we always start off with a uh, case of the day or a week that was. I think tomorrow you're going to take first crack at it this week. Uh, what do you got going on, pal? Well, things are cracking, that's for sure. So I'm working on a mediation that I have coming up and I wanted to highlight a couple of elements of the things that we see that we still see regularly. And I'm going to talk about appeals and recurrence claims and all that good stuff. And so my poor client, she worked in an admin capacity for a number of years and uh, had started to struggle with her mental health. And it was a slow progression and she experienced some stressors, you know, family member passes away, she has a cancer scare and it just ends up getting from bad to worse where she starts to experience almost daily panic attacks. And so she's trying to manage, trying to continue working. And I think she managed to work probably for another year until she and her doctor decided, okay, enough's enough. We're going to put you off work. And she starts the process of short-term disability Uh, and then trying to transition to long-term. I think now, as I've reviewed the file, there has been five denials of her LTD claim through the two years that she dealt with the insurer. Terrible. Um, She ends up getting initially denied when she first applied. She appeals. Uh, Shockingly, the appeal was successful, but it took over a year from when she initially applied to actually be approved. She gets approved and then not seven months later, she gets denied again. And this time, because it had taken so long, she was close to that two-year mark that we talk about, right guys? And so what happens at that two-year mark for those who are listening to our shows, the definition to continue to qualify for disability benefits under most of these disability plans changes. The qualification changes and it now becomes you know, from when my client could have continued to work or could she have continued to work in her admin capacity role to now the insurer is going to look at, is there anything that she can do? Anything that her education, training and experience would qualify her to do and that would afford her an income level that's far less than what she was making. And usually it's about two thirds or it lines up with the LTD benefit level. So two thirds of what you're making before. So insurers will write these policies and intentionally make the test to continue to qualify after two years very difficult. And so for my client, you know, the approval and then the further denial at the change of definition seemed to come really quick. And not surprisingly, that exacerbated her health conditions. She didn't fully understand what was going on. She was still under active treatment and she felt that she had no choices. So she forced herself back to work. She went on a return to work plan. Insurance company forced this through. She actually asked her psychologist to sign off on the return to work. And the medical notes just say, you know, she can return on an accommodated basis. We will continue to assess. I think she lasted maybe two weeks. And so it really wasn't, the timing was was terrible, wasn't right for her. She still needed treatment. 
Her symptoms are still very acute and she's pulled off from work again by her doctors. Now, theoretically, this should mean that anyone who's on disability and their symptoms arise again and they cannot work should be able to get back on disability again. And the idea being, right, that you submit further medical information and you're back on claim. Well, that did not happen. And there were more denials and more denials of disability benefits and all sorts of analysis. And one of them was, well, you didn't fit within our recurrence provision. And our provision in our policy says that if it recurs, you have to meet this tougher test, that you have to be totally disabled from any occupation because we already paid you for two years. But actually, the policy doesn't say that. The recurrence provision doesn't bring in that term of the policy. So she wouldn't know this, of course. And this is something that we are looking at now in fighting with the insurance company through our legal claim. Because I can assure you that just because they draft the policy doesn't mean the courts say they get to use it in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, if there's any ambiguity, if there's any question around how the policy should be applied, if it's not clear, if it's an exclusion that the insurance company is relying upon, the courts have made it very clear that the onus is on the insurance company to prove that it applies in the way that they've used it. And my argument in this case is that they haven't used it properly, that they haven't denied on proper footing, leaving aside, I mean, obviously there's secondary issues around the fact that she was still unwell, still not capable of working. Clearly, she was totally disabled. The handling of the file was terrible. There's just all sorts of things going on. But for her, the challenge is, is having gone through all of this and still being symptomatic and still having the insurance company keep saying no for reasons that don't make any sense. And on assurances, they even assured her when they told her you're going to start this return to work don't worry, if you can't do it, you can come back to us with further medical information, which is exactly what she did. And they slammed the door in her face again, which is awful. So look, the takeaways, there's so many takeaways here. But I think the main things I want people to hear from us is that there are options. Come to us early. Let's talk through. There's no need to deal with these appeals. There's no need to accept what the insurance company is saying to you. You shouldn't be forced back to work when your doctors don't think you're ready. There are options. They are not easy options, but certainly it will be easier to work with us and allowing us to advocate for you than hopefully dealing with the insurance company and denial after denial. James, what do you think about all this? Well, I mean, there's a lot going on here. I do have a few thoughts, particularly around return to work. So a lot of people are surprised that we as disability lawyers, as a firm, always encourage our clients to return to work when they're ready to do so, even if there's litigation ongoing, even if you're getting your benefits. The reality is that your income is always going to be significantly more than any disability benefits you're receiving, and much more than what you might be able to recover in litigation to try and get those benefits, which are already less. In all cases, if you can get your income, it is better for you. Does that mean that you should always try and go back to work if you're not ready? No, no, absolutely not. And this is certainly anecdotal, but my experience has consistently shown me that the people who are successful trying to return to work are the ones who are reasonably optimistic that they're going to succeed. And I don't think it is a mind over matter kind of thing. I don't think it's just a matter of having a positive outlook. What I mean is, The people who have gone through treatment and they're 
disability is at a point where they have a reasonable basis to believe that they've recovered enough to successfully return to work, even if there's going to be some struggle. They believe that they can get past that and be able to endure and persevere past that initial phase. Those are the people that are almost always the ones that succeed. And where people are forced back to work, when they don't feel ready, when they feel like it's something of a lost cause, but they don't have a choice because financially, if their benefits are being cut off, they need to make some money. Those are the scenarios where it almost never works. And we see this time and time again. Listen, that's not an absolute, but what I am saying is the return to work is a medical decision. It's not a legal decision. It isn't something that you should decide based on what your insurance company says, what your employer says, even what your lawyer says. That is something that should be decided with your doctors or your or your treatment providers. Whether or not you're ready to return to work is a medical decision. It's not a legal decision. It's not an employment decision. It is about your medical condition when you're on disability. So that is how you should try to make that decision. Now, the reality is for a lot of people, when their benefits are cut off, they're put in a position where they feel like they have to try to return to work, even if they don't feel they're ready. And I understand that. And if that is your situation, then you have to make a decision based on what's in your best interest, even if the likelihood of success is low. And I understand that I do. But the reality is that sometimes you wind up in the situation like this person that's contacted tomorrow. And it can become very, very difficult. The other thing that I bumped on a little bit here is the change of definition, particularly when we're talking about someone who is suffering from a mental health condition. So again, the change of definition happens after two years of receiving benefits and the test becomes on paper anyway, a more difficult test to pass. It's no longer whether you can return to your own occupation, but whether you can return to any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education or experience. And so certainly that is a more difficult test to pass. But in practice, it rarely makes much of a difference when you're talking about someone who is suffering from mental health issues. Because the reality is, in order to be entitled to those benefits, your mental health issue has to be generalized. It can't simply just be about your own work environment. It has to be something that affects you in any work environment. And if that is the case, if you have not recovered sufficiently to return to your own occupation, then it is very likely the case that that is going to apply across the board. There are exceptions to that. Uh, people who work in jobs where they have to deal with a lot of trauma, for example, in those situations, it might well be that some other occupation would allow you to return to, to work and not have to deal with that. But for the vast majority of people who are having mental health issues that are preventing them from work, that entitle them to disability benefits, Functionally speaking, at the two-year mark, there really is not much of a difference, and that's rarely a valid basis for the insurer to make a denial. Guys, we got to get into a short break, but uh, amazing breakdown of that particular uh, email. There's more of that to come. By the way, you want to uh, send one along any time to James or Tamar for the show or otherwise, you're always uh, invited to do so. It can be confusing for people who are not in the know and do not know disability law for sure. How do you do it? Help at disabilityrights.ca. Real simple. And you can even leave Prog. That go for the phone call, one 821 
5,900 just getting warmed up. More of the Disability Law Show is just ahead. Hang in there. You bet. We're back. Disability Law Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. As they say, you want to reach out to Tamar and James on your own time. You might want to just have that phone call, lengthier phone call about uh, your own matter. Again, it could be for yourself, a colleague, family member. It doesn't matter. one 855 Email to reach out is help at disabilityrights.ca. And that's where we're going, guys. Miles is first one up. Says, guys, it was on STD for a separate issue before returning to work. Not long after returning to work, my daughter passed away, causing me to develop PTSD and severe depression. Uh, I went back on STD again on my doctor's recommendation, but when I applied for long-term disability benefits, I was denied and told I could still work as I was not, quote-unquote, here we go, you know what it is, totally disabled. How can they expect me to work when just making it through the day is difficult? Wow. What do you think, tomorrow? Yeah, this goes back to the start of our show, right? When we talk about these mental health conditions and just mind-boggling issues about insurers not accepting that these conditions can truly be totally disabling. And so let's start there. You know, that's the test, right, that that most people have to qualify for. That's what you see in your disability policy. It says, you know, are you totally disabled? You know, do you meet this test? And I think it's just such a misnomer. And I know we say this a lot. We sound like a bit of a broken record, but it's so true that total disability doesn't necessarily mean that you're laid up in bed every single day. Though I can assure you that I have clients who have PTSD and severe depression, and that is actually their reality. And so why is it that we still see these denials? And I think it's an unfair assumption that a lot of adjusters will make that well, people have mental condition, mental health conditions all the time. They can still work. They can still work and receive treatment, you know? And so there's a bit of dismissiveness at times that I have seen from adjusters reviewing these kinds of claims. But I think in Miles' situation in particular, I have to wonder whether the idea that, you know, he was on short term for a separate issue and then returned to work and then had emerging Um, mental health conditions, perhaps that's the stumbling block. And perhaps that's the stumbling block only because they're looking at it strictly to do with the prior health issue, whatever that is. And I'm assuming it wasn't really um, mental health related. Maybe it was, but perhaps separate and apart. And because it was so close in time, uh, it could be that he's still within that time frame of a recurrence, right? Or it's still a continuation of the same claim I don't have all the timing involved, but it could be that it's all related. And so if that's the case, if you are off on a disability for one reason and then need to apply for a different reason, it's very important for the medical information to bear that out. Your doctors, your practitioners, your mental health specialists, whoever it is who is treating you for your health issues, all of the health issues should be presented to the insurer as part of the overall disability claim. So that it doesn't result in, I mean, it still may, but hopefully it doesn't result in this knee-jerk reaction that we see from these adjusters saying, well, you're not disabled enough because you've either recovered from the first issue and you return back to work, or we don't think that the mental health conditions are sufficiently borne out to disable you entirely from working. I also think there's an optics issue here, right, guys? Like, I mean, look, his daughter just passed away. It's natural there's going to be, you know, mental health conditions arising out of that. You know, the the fact that the humanity of it isn't really being taken into consideration in the denial of disability is a problem for insurance companies. And and oftentimes 
we will advocate for our clients when we go to the mediation, when we, you know, write information, when we start these legal claims, when we speak to their lawyers around, you know, this is a human being that we're representing. And it's easy for insurance companies to just look at the paper and just deny on the paper and not consider, you know, these outside circumstances. But those issues become so compelling in the context of a legal claim. And I can tell you, those are the things that courts will look at as well when they're looking at this and saying, hang on, did the insurance company treat this person fairly? Did they consider all of the medical information? Is the basis of the denial supportable? And those other factors, even if they're not necessarily relevant to the adjuster, are certainly very relevant when we start to assert these kinds of claims against the insurers. James, what do you think? Well, this is an interesting case because we do come across people who are in similar positions to Miles, where they have a loved one pass away. And having a child pass away is obviously going to be particularly traumatic. And Miles, you certainly have our sympathy. But more importantly, I want to understand what's happening here and be able to provide some way to help. When we see people who have applied for benefits in the wake of a tragic loss like that, it is not uncommon to see insurers deny claims. And often when that happens, and I really want to see the claims file here to see if this is indeed how the insurer handled it. What we find is that the claims handler, rather than having the having a medical consultant review it or you know, <laughs> very much less likely actually have the person assessed by a psychiatrist, the claims handler will rely on these medical guidelines. And essentially, it's just a service that they have. It's more or less like a medical encyclopedia where they look up whatever condition that you have, and then they will go based on the guidelines in that uh, in that book or that, that service and say, if you have this condition, the expectation is that you would recover in six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it is. And so when someone passes away, I've seen this very often where the insurer will use these medical guidelines and it'll say for uh, grief reaction, which is typically the initial diagnosis after someone's passed away. And I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not qualified to say whether that's appropriate or not, but I see it a lot. When that is the diagnosis that they refer to, it's typically something like, I think, eight weeks or, or maybe, uh, maybe three or four months, something in that range. I can't recall off the top of my head. But where the insurer denies in that scenario, it's often based on just a re- reference to those medical guidelines. And our late friend, Terry Corcoran, this was one of his big pet peeves. He used to go on and on about it. Terry was the guy who worked in the insurance industry for years. And after he retired, he would come on our show and he would help us out a lot. He would give us some insight um, from what it was like working on the other side. And this was one of the things that used to drive him nuts when he was working in the industry, having claims handlers that would deny based on just these medical guidelines. It's just not appropriate because the reality is that is nothing more than a starting point. It gives you at best some idea of what you might expect, but everyone's circumstances are different. And whether Miles, whether it's just an issue that Miles daughter passed away and his reaction is worse or whether he's got some pre-existing issues in the past that are compounding with this or any other factors that might work with this particular tragedy to make his recovery much more difficult have to be considered. You can't just look in a book and reference whatever condition it is and assume that you have the answer. 
And I would not be the least bit surprised if that is really the only basis that was used in this case to deny the claim. So it's something where certainly uh, as long as Miles has the support of his treating doctors, if he's been referred to the proper specialist and is getting the treatment he should, and he's still unable to get to work, then he certainly has a valid claim. And this is something that we should be able to help with. Again, though, I'd really like to see that that claims file because I bet there's quite a bit in there that we could really sink our teeth into and create a lot of exposure for the insurer, not just to pay the benefits, but potentially for significant damages as well. And tomorrow, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. The, the optics of this are terrible. This is someone Absolutely. who has has lost a child, and you know the insurer. If they're going, I, I'm not saying that just you know, just simply because you've lost a child that entitles you to benefits. It's not necessarily the case. There are people who will go through that and who somehow will be able to work. I can't understand that, but there are people who would be able to. So it's not simply a matter of X leads to Y, but it certainly is a case where one might reasonably expect someone to not be able to return to work for some period of time. It's certainly something that is not surprising. And if an insurance company wants to deny benefits in that scenario, they better dot their I's and cross their T's. They really better have everything stacked up, which means having support, not just from your own doctors, but probably from the treating doctors as well. Because without that, it's just going to look like you have no compassion whatsoever. And that's going to expose the insurer to significant damages. That's just the way that it typically goes. That cookie cutter approach is not nice, man. That's disrespectful. Seriously, that's what it looks. That's what it sounds like. Just yeah, okay. The manual says this. It's like a brake job in right. a car. Okay, do this and uh, yeah, throw it up on the hoist and fix it. Like that's 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 that's. I can't believe that's even possible. Well, you know, fortunately, that's... we only see that on days ending in a Y. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, uh, guys. Let me ask you this. By the way, reaching out to James and tomorrow, real simple. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Anytime you would like. Um, disability claimant applying for CPP disability benefits. Everyone gets all a uh, little uptight about this, but it's a good thing. Um, does it matter when? Does the timing of the application matter? Well, this has been. It, go uh, ahead, I, yeah. I was going to jump in on this one tomorrow, if you don't mind. So it, it really depends. Okay. The timing is going to depend on your particular circumstances. But what I will say as a blanket answer is CPP disability benefits are always going to be useful for you if you get them. So let's talk a little bit about this. We have a few minutes until the break. So CPP disability is a federally funded uh, program. If you are paying into Canada pension plan, if you're getting a deduction off of your paychecks, then you are uh, you have coverage for CPP disability if you become disabled from work. And so if that happens, you would apply to I believe it's Service Canada runs CPP disability benefits and your doctor would fill out a form in support. The test is a little different and it's more onerous than the typical LTD policy. It requires a severe and prolonged disability. But if you if you apply and you're approved, you can get up to something in the range of about $1,500 per month. If you are approved, most long-term disability policies would take that as an offset against what the insurer owes. And so if your insurer is to pay you $4,000 a month, but you get approved for the full amount of CPP disability, now you get the $1,500 from the government and the insurer makes up the remaining $2,500. And so you might be saying, well, why would I do that if at the end of the day, there's no extra money in my pocket, but the insurer is getting getting the, the benefit of it? 
Well, first and foremost, most policies will have language in there that says that if you don't apply when you could have, then the insurer is entitled to take what you would have received as an offset. If you do apply and you're denied, they're not entitled to take anything. But if you don't apply, they can estimate what you would have gotten and take that as an offset. So it prevents them, first of all, from being able to do that. But there are a lot of other good, a lot of other good reasons for it. First and foremost, if you do apply and you're approved, that is a very strong argument that your LTD benefits ought to be approved or continue to be approved if they already are. Because as I already mentioned, the test for CPP disability is more onerous. And so it's very difficult for an insurance company to say, well, you're not entitled to long-term disability benefits, even though the government of Canada says that you're entitled to CPP disability, which is a more difficult test. It's a very difficult thing for an insurer to justify, to take that position. And the other thing is, if you are getting those CPP disability benefits, it's a safety net. If your LTD insurer approves you initially and then cuts you off, you still at least have that $1,500 coming in. So that is all good. Those are all really good reasons to apply for CPP disability. The timing issue is really just a matter of when you're most likely to be approved. If you apply for CPP disability benefits, very early on in your disability and it isn't immediately obvious that this is something that is going to disable you from working for a long period of time you're likely going to be denied i mean that's not necessarily the case if you have a severe physical injury from let's say a car accident you become a quadriplegic sure cpp disability will approve you right away in those circumstances i'd say you know 999 times out of a thousand mm -hmm. but if you're suffering from a mental health issue that has grown over a number of years, you're likely going to get denied if you're applying very early on. It isn't typically until you've been off work for a year, 18 months, even two years when CPP disability is more likely to approve, assuming that there hasn't been significant improvement. So the timing is really a function of when you're most likely to be approved after you can establish that this is prolonged and is something that's likely to endure. Guys, we've got so many more emails and questions coming. We'll take a short break, get back into it uh, with you tomorrow momentarily. But in the meantime, here's the uh, the number to reach out, one 821 5900 That email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, you can use the website, mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show, and we're coming right back. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around through that break, Disability Law Show. I'm John Scholes, but uh, joining every week, uh, the wisdom of Tamara Gopian and James Fire and Sam Firu to Mark and LLP. Reach out anytime. Have a conversation on your own time. Uh, even if you're uh, too bashful uh, for yourself, maybe get a friend or relative uh, to do it for you. Either way, get in contact and get some answers. one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, Tamar, before we move on to Michelle, just wanted to get your opinion on the uh the other side of the break there when we went into the uh, the break talking about CPP and, uh, you know, when claimants should right. apply for it and does timing matter, all that stuff. What's, uh, what's your take? Well, so my brain went to the question that I get often, which is once I start the legal claim, once I, once we hire you tomorrow, should we apply for CPP? If we haven't, should we reapply? Does it matter? And I think this is one where you may get different answers actually from different lawyers. But my view of it is, is that overall, I agree with James that the good you know, could outweigh the bad. So bad as in, you know, the offset or the credit or what have you. I think that if you apply prematurely as well, that could be problematic because then you've got the CPP denial and you often will get an insurance company saying, well, if you were denied CPP, it therefore must mean that you have a capacity to work, which is 
bonkers because on the other side of the fence, if you're approved for CVP, we often say that to the insurance saying, look, they're approved. So this must mean that they qualify under your policy. And inevitably the answer we get is, well, the test is different tomorrow. The test is different for CPP than it is in the policy. But I think that when you're sort of thinking about this idea of, I want to challenge the insurer. I want to use a disability lawyer to help me do that. I'm going to go through the legal claim process. You know, the harshness of that is the fact that you will be without your monthly benefit for a period of time, the time that we will need to resolve the claim. And we're not talking years and years of litigation, but certainly when our clients come to us, it could have been a few months now that they've been denied, and it could be months more where they don't have that income coming in. And so I don't have a lot of hesitation advising my clients, look, start the process. It can also take months for the government to respond to you. But even just putting that application together, particularly the medical part of it, will crystallize the fact that you are not returning back to work anytime soon because your doctors are not advising that you do so. And the doctor will have to complete their expectations around your prognosis, right? Is there a likelihood for you to return? And do you in fact qualify to have a severe and prolonged disability? So the application in and of itself in the context of the legal claim, I think can be very persuasive even if you don't have a decision or even if you had even a prior denial, the reapplication at times even underlines the point even further to the insurer. Hey, you've made the wrong decision, insurance company. This person's benefits should have continued. And if you do get that CPP monthly benefit, it eases that financial constraint as you await the outcome of the legal claim, which the hope and expectation is that it'll be done within some months and that we will have a successful mediation or some direct negotiations with us and the uh, lawyer that's appointed by the disability insurer. Good take, my friend. Let's uh, move on as promised to our next email. Uh, Down the list we get to Michelle says, uh, I've been on LTD since 2019 due to severe anxiety. My psychiatrist suggested that I find a job or a volunteer opportunity nearby for positive structure, like minimum wage, less than 12 hours per week. My insurance benefits booklet says, uh, what is not covered? We will not pay benefits for any period that you do any work for wage or profit except as approved by the insurer. Uh, does asking the insurance company if I can do this minimal work in my doctor's recommendation jeopardize my LTD coverage? I'm concerned uh, I'm concerned if I ask that they will think that I'm capable of working full-time and then outright cancel my coverage. Makes sense? What do you guys think? Well, I mean, look, this is always the risk, Right. And these provisions in the disability policy are there, some more clearly than others, but it's clear that in in Michelle's case, it's there, that they will not pay benefits if you are working. And so you will require that approval if you are going to test the waters of some partial work capacity. And it is a very delicate dance. I'm not going to lie. That is the reality of the situation. And so you want to weigh the good and the bad of that too. And that really is one where you're sort of thinking about it with your your doctor and deciding, look, if this is going to be a positive, if this is going to help with my recovery, then it is probably something that you want to go down the path of and maybe engage your adjuster to say, look, this is what my doctor is recommending. But I think in situations like this, the medical information is critical. There needs to be a lot of clarity around this is what I'm signing off for, for this period of time, for this limited amount, for this medical purpose, right? Because if not, then you do actually the worry that Michelle has is a real one, which the insurance company will look at this and say, oh, there's a capacity to work. And it therefore must mean that 
you know, uh, we're on the path of maybe potentially cutting off Michelle from benefits. So I think in a context like this, it's important that she be aware of the policy. It's important that she understand what those rights are and what that means and that she gets some clarity around with the doctor. And I think you want to potentially broach this with the adjuster uh, with the expectation that if it's not going to advance your health, that you may get some resistance with the insurance company on continuing your disability benefits. James, what do you think? So the the short answer, I agree with Tamar, the short answer is, yeah, it, it definitely does jeopardize your, your coverage, uh, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier in the show. If you feel like returning to work is likely to be successful, if you are optimistic and your doctor is supporting you and says that you are in a position to at least try, then you should give it a shot. Ideally, what you want is a scenario where you're able to return to work, where you're able to be working, you know, certainly not just that minimum amount, but building towards returning to full-time work or what you had been before. And that's usually not going to happen all in one shot. You're usually going to have to build up to that. So this certainly seems like a positive first step. Is there risk involved? Sure, but it's worth it if you are feeling optimistic about it. So I, I agree with Tamara. I, I think there's no way to go about this without contacting the insurer. And it's, it is, as you put it, Tamara, a delicate dance, but it is one that is worth engaging. So I would certainly contact your insurer, give them the information that your doctors provided. And I would be very surprised if the insurer wasn't thrilled to provide you the opportunity to do that while you're still on claim, as long as the treatment plan and the return to work plan looks reasonable and is building towards a return to work in a reasonable amount of time, virtually any insurance adjuster is going to jump at that because if they weren't otherwise forcing you into a work hardening program or some other return to work program, then you've just given them the opportunity to potentially get you off of plane. That's the risk involved, of course. But again, it is worth going down that road if you are recovered to the point where you are likely to succeed, where you're feeling optimistic about it. So yeah, there's risk involved, but sometimes it's worth taking that risk. And we appreciate the uh, the note, Michelle. You want to follow up with the phone calls? We get into one more uh, quick break here. You can do so anytime. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred is how you go about doing that. We will go over to mydisabilityquestions.com in a, in a couple moments, guys, for a question from there as well. And you, if you're listening, you can use that freely and anonymously anytime as well. Mydisabilityquestions.com. As we continue, a few more minutes to go here on the Disability Law Show. Welcome back, Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go. Reach out afterwards or anytime for that matter to James and Tamar. They got uh, their respective teams uh, taking the calls to one eight five five eight two one. 5900 email is help at disabilityrights.ca and as i mentioned before the break a a free and anonymous way to ask questions with a searchable database so a question like yours may already be in there and you can look for it mydisabilityquestions.com and from it uh, james it goes like this i'm at the change of disability definition and i just lost my doctor this past december i don't currently have a doctor what does that mean for me now i'm in a very vulnerable state can you please help what do you think pal Well, first and foremost, I think about the medical implications of this. And again, I I feel every time I talk about this, I have to reiterate, I am not a doctor. But having a a family physician, a general practitioner uh, available to you to oversee your medical treatment is critical. And it's a big problem across the country. 
there are a lot of areas that have a dearth of available primary healthcare providers. And so this is not an uncommon thing that we see across the board. It's unfortunate. And it is not something that is easily resolved. There are uh, websites where you can search for family physicians that are taking on new patients. I don't know how effective those are. I haven't looked into that in a little bit, but I would start there. In the meantime, while you're still looking for a family physician, you probably want to try supplementing with a walk-in clinic, hopefully one that is reasonably close by and one that you could go to on a regular basis that at the very least, if you're not seeing the same doctor each time you go, they're at least going to have your chart on an ongoing basis and whoever does pick it up will be able to see what's happening. But that is a short-term measure. Ideally, you do want to have someone who's overlooking your medical care. Now, looking at this from a disability standpoint, what does that mean? Well, it certainly isn't the case that simply because you lose your doctor, whether they retired or pass away or what have you, if you, for whatever reason, you don't have your primary doctor anymore, that doesn't mean you're no longer entitled to benefits. It does mean, though, that you are, as you put it, vulnerable to what the insurance company might do as a result of that. At a certain point, if you don't have documentation of your ongoing medical condition and you don't have someone directing your treatment, the insurance company will say that you are not complying with the policy, which requires that you get regular and appropriate treatment. That may not be your fault. And if you have truly done everything possible to try and address that, then there may well be a good argument if you dispute that and it goes in front of a judge someday. But that doesn't help you right now. And what you want to do is avoid giving the insurance company any opportunity to take that position. And so that's, again, why I say looking for a replacement family physician as soon as possible is critical. Going to walk-in clinics in the interim is probably going to be helpful. Whether that is going to make you vulnerable in your disability claim or not is also really going to depend on the nature of your disability. If, you, if your disability is, let's say, mental health in nature, and your primary treatment provider for your mental health is a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist or even a social worker. Not having your family physician, it's not great, but in and of itself, that may not really provide the insurer much of an avenue to justify terminating benefits. On the other hand, insurance companies often don't really look for the greatest justification, anything at all, sometimes enough for them to say, ah, well, you're not complying, we're going to cut you off. Again, they shouldn't be doing that, but we've certainly seen that happen. So if it is a situation where you're talking about not having your family physician, but you still have specialist treatment that are providing you ongoing care and are documenting your condition, I'm not sure that you're so vulnerable in terms of the LTD claim. In either case, though, whether you have specialists that are providing you ongoing treatment or not, I really have to emphasize, do whatever you can to try and find an appropriate primary care provider uh, in your area as soon as you can. That's easier said than done, and I have a lot of sympathy for people that are in that position because we see this all the time, and it is just really, really difficult right now if you're in that spot. But do what you can. Ask around. Uh, if you contact someone and they say that they're not taking on patients, ask them if they know of any other doctors that are at any other clinics. 
So you, you really just want to be as aggressive as you can. And it's a really good idea while you're doing that to document the steps that you're taking so that if your insurer does take the position that you're not getting appropriate treatment, you can say, well, I've done everything I can. My doctor retired and these are the services I looked into and I called these clinics and they all said no. Who do you have that can help me? You know, put it back on them. If you truly have taken all reasonable steps, then it puts the insurance company in a much more difficult spot if they want to use that as a basis for denying the claim. And you can put it back on them and see what they recommend. And who knows, they may be able to re recommend a clinic that is providing primary care. And in that case, it won't be someone that's working directly for the insurer. So I wouldn't necessarily be hesitant about taking them up on it. Tamar, what are your thoughts? That, that's what I was. That's where my brain went as well, James. Is this idea that I think because our systems, our medical systems, are so strapped, that there's been quite a few people I've spoken with who've leaned on the insurers' own treatment providers that they're offering to uh, do exactly that is to get that treatment because they don't necessarily have anywhere else to turn. And I know our advice generally is: look, you want to get arm's length treatment. You want your own providers that are not being paid for by the insurer. But when you're in a situation where you need the treatment and you need your disability benefit, I think people are leaning on the insurers and their treatment providers for that reason. And the hope that their benefits will continue if they're cooperating with whatever pro provider that the insurer has has given or has has offered for, for that treatment remedy. And I agree with you, James, that it, you know the test really goes back to reasonableness. And you want to be able to demonstrate, even if you don't take up the insurer on their treatment provider, even if you are out there searching for, for another doctor or practitioner, as long as you're being reasonable in the efforts that you're trying to do to get better, I think an insurer in a circumstance like this, given the reality of our health system, would be remiss in trying to hastily deny on the fact that someone's not getting appropriate treatment for their disability. And that is where we're going to leave it for this week. Guys, nicely done. Appreciate you uh, chiming in. If you sent along an email or use mydisabilityquestions.com, please continue to do that as uh, we try to get to as many as we can each week. But as we uh, we leave you for another week, here's how you reach out to James and Tamar. Phone number, one 821 5900 that email address again is help at disabilityrights.ca. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.